If you didn't grab a uh, handout, please make sure that you, you grab one of those. Again, the green box is back there with cards in them. So if you have a question and we don't get to that this morning, please fill that out and drop that into the box so that we can make sure that we answer that during our Q&A time uh, as we approach the end of the study in, in August. But this morning, we're going to be looking at chapter 17 in the Confession, which is entitled, The Perseverance of the Saints. Uh, another way to say this, and uh, maybe a more helpful, clarifying way, is the perseverance of God in the saints. Um, this chapter will make that abundantly clear, that it is God who gets us home. Um, but we recognize that it's God working in us. Um, we'll see the salvation that he has wrought for us. He doesn't just justify us and then sanctify us and say, I hope you make it all the way to glory. Uh, he is the God of our salvation from start to finish, and he's going to get us all the way home. Now, this chapter will um, flesh that out. But the reason that that's important is perhaps throughout your time as a Christian, you've been in conversation with other Christians about whether or not a person can lose their salvation. How many of you have either had that conversation or maybe thought that to yourself? I think all of us, right, have kind of wrestled through that. Um, and it can be a very unsettling issue for the genuine Christian, and it can cause great anxiety to arise within your soul that, can I lose this, right? What, what God has given to me it can be very terrifying. Um, well, this, this chapter seeks to address that issue and it seeks to remind us as we look through these passages of the faithfulness of God and the promise that he has given to us as his people. Now, this is one of my favorite topics to study and to teach on uh, because it reminds me of the faithfulness of our, of our God. So let's go ahead and jump in here. You can see that this is only three paragraphs but they're packed uh, with such good information. So, would somebody be willing to read that first paragraph for us? Okay. Is there a will? Would you guys flip a coin for that? Those God has accepted in the beloved, effectually called and sanctified by His Spirit, and given the precious faith of His elect, can neither totally nor finally fall from a state of grace. They will certainly persevere in grace to the end and be eternally saved because the gifts callings of God are irrevocable. Therefore, he still brings about and nourishes in them faith, repentance, love, hope, love, joy, hope, and all the graces of the Spirit that lead to immortality. Even though many storms and floods arise and beat against them, yet these things will never be able to move the elect from the foundation of the rock to which they are anchored by faith. The felt sight of the light and the love of God may be clouded and obscured from them, for a time of unbelief and the temptations of Satan. Yet God is still the same. They will certainly be kept by the power of God for salvation, and they will enjoy their purchased possession. For they are engraved in the palms of his hand. Their names have been written in the book of life of all eternity. Amen. That's just you just want to worship after reading that that paragraph. So so wonderful there. Um, this paragraph really lays out for us clearly what we mean when we say the perseverance of the saints. And two things that I want to notice in this paragraph is, number one, who the subjects of this perseverance are. And then secondly, what perseverance means. Uh, we see here that the subjects being described in this first sentence are the elect. And the elect are described here in four ways which are, are very important for us. First, they are those whom, notice what it says here, whom God has accepted in the beloved. And that's a reference to Ephesians 1. Um, that is, those whom God has accepted in Christ. That beloved there is referring to Christ. Um, that, that's important uh, because it's those whom God has accepted in the beloved. Not merely those who have, quote-unquote, to use modern terms, accepted Christ. Okay, that, And that's, a, that's an important distinction because we could probably say, man, that person accepted Christ, but they've totally turned away from the faith and they've walked away from that faith that they, that they once professed. Second, they are those who have been 
effectually called, which we looked at in chapter 10, and that is those from who have, uh, those whom the Father elected before the foundation of the world to be called at a specific point in time to believe the gospel. And then third, they are those who have been sanctified or set apart by the Spirit. So it's the Spirit working in them. And again, it's not merely all those with simply an outward profession of faith and and some type of reformation of life. And then fourth, they are those given the precious faith of God's elect. Now, the reason that those terms, again, are important to understand is because the perseverance of the saints does not mean that all who claim to be Christians or even appear to be Christians, persevere. It's, it's only true saints, the elect, who are said to persevere. We may know or we may have heard of someone who had once professed the faith and even appeared to walk in it for some time, and then they completely abandoned the faith never to return and, and died in that state. Uh, some would erroneously say, that even though they didn't profess the faith all the way to the end, that he or she was still a believer because they did profess it at one point in their life. Well, that's contradictory to what we mean when we talk about the perseverance of the saints. Again, this doctrine is not the doctrine of the perseverance of all professing Christians or even all those who appear to be Christians. It's the doctrine of the perseverance of saints, the genuine believers, those in whom God started a good work and in whom it will be completed. Now, you have passages in Scripture that talk about this, um, this aspect of, of perseverance. Here in 2 Timothy 2, 15 through 19, the confession here cites verse 19, but I'm just going to back it up and, and kind of keep it in context here. So Paul, speaking to Timothy, says, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. But... God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his. And let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Now, what's important here is Hymenaeus and Philetus started off in the truth at at one point. They were holding to the truth. And Paul says they've swerved from that truth, which another translation may say depart from that truth. It's a turning away from that truth that they once embraced. And they're upsetting the faith of others. They're overthrowing or destroying, is what the Greek word is there, the faith of others. Now, as Paul is working through this, as he's wrestling through this, where his confidence lies is in this reality. God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his. Hymenaeus and Philetus started off in the church. They appeared to be leaders in the church. They've departed from the faith. That was kind of an anomaly to Paul. Um, Whether or not they're genuine will be seen and if they come back amongst us. But he rests in this reality to Timothy. He says, the Lord knows those who are his. Right? I don't know those who are his, but the Lord does. They appear to be, but I'm not sure if they are. If they are, they will return to the truth as it is in Jesus. So you see that aspect of the complexity of whether or not they were actually uh, in the faith and the faith of those that they were upsetting. So Paul is aiming to help Timothy understand the Lord knows those who are his. And then don't don't miss the second part of this. Let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. That's another aspect of the seal of the Lord's firm foundation that stands. A person who lives in unrepentant sin, whatever their profession may be, should have zero assurance that they really belong to Christ. If they're living perpetually in sin, they need to be warned that they may not actually be 
in Christ. That's different than struggling and fighting against sin, which every one of us does, right? But a person who can turn away from Christ, dive into sin, and have no qualms of conscience, they should be concerned about that. And we should lovingly come alongside them and help them to see that. Yes. I was thinking that's usually the first um, sort of rebuttal when you say that um, sort of other people want to say what we say that God uh, you know, keeps those when we say it. Yep. The thought is, you know, usually, well, you're saying that you can be saved, you live however you want, right. and you'll still get to heaven. Yeah. But when you look at texts like this, yes. and First John, it says, yes. Yep. Not that he won't fall, but he won't continue in a practice of lawlessness. That's right. Um, those uh, being kept by God doesn't mean you can live however you want to get to heaven. That's right. Uh, being kept by God means you'll be kept, and you'll be kept through a fighting uh, against the sin, which God does through you. Yes. Um, so his preserving you is he's sanctified you, he's sanctified you, and he will sanctify you. Yep. Part of that sanctifying is fighting against sin. That's right. So that's right. And, and, and the blessing of the body of Christ where we can come alongside and help one another in, in that area. Because the confession, and I think the scriptures, lend itself to that aspect of there are seasons where the intensity of that war, the intensity of that, is a giving into that sin. But it's, a, but it's a season. And often how the Lord brings people out of those seasons is he brings other believers into their lives to encourage one another and to say, Here's the way that you're walking. It's, it's not a good path that you're on. And the Lord often uses that word to bring that person back onto that, onto that path. Um, so, yeah, so we want to be slow on either side, right? We don't want to make pronouncements like that person's definitely not a Christian. There's no way they possibly can be. But we also don't want to err on the other side and just be like, well, they professed the faith once, so they must be in the faith, so I'm not going to warn them about the path that they're, they're currently on. We want to find the middle ground there and to say, you know, you've made this profession, at, at one point in your life. I want to hold you to that profession that you, have, that you have made because here's how you're living in light of that profession and here's what the scriptures say about that. So, a good point, George. This is the other verse that I, I don't doubt you're probably going to bring up quick uh, soon is that the one that says that they left us but yes. they were never really of us because That's right. if they were of us, they wouldn't have left. Yep. The confession actually cites that if you look on the... Um, on the footnote here, on the number one, First John two nineteen, that's that they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out to prove that they were never, that never, never of us. Okay, so yeah, so good, good thoughts to have there, and hopefully that helps when we talk about the perseverance of the saints. We don't want to have a false hope that just because somebody professed the faith at at one point, that it doesn't matter how they live from that that point forward, right? Um, that's not what we mean by the doctrine of, of perseverance. So God knows those who are truly his, and those who are truly his, as the confession says here, notice this, can neither totally nor finally fall from a state of grace. How encouraging that is, especially in our own lives when we see sin get that upper hand in that maybe specific area that we keep fighting and battling against. The reality is that Christ is holding us. He's keeping us. We're never going to fall away because he is the one who holds on to us. And the confession cites here, John chapter 10, verses 28 and 29, but I'll back it up here and go to 27 through 29. And here's what Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice. Let me just pause there for a second too. Whenever I'm giving counsel to somebody of, you know, hey, this person has professed the faith at one point, how should I... Um, and interact with that person. And my advice always is, as quickly as you can, see if they'll sit down and read the scriptures with you. Because here's the reality. If they are the sheep of Christ, they will hear his voice. And they will get back on that path of following him. Right? All the words that I could muster up aren't going to do it. But the sheep hear his, his voice. So Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them. And they follow me. And then notice what he says there. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. 
My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I mean, that, if you're struggling with assurance, just bask yourself in that passage and remember the keeping power of Christ and of the Father in your life. None can snatch them out of my hand. Nobody can take them away. Our shepherd is guarding us. He is protecting us. We are sheep. We're weak. We're vulnerable. We're subject to continuous straying. But our shepherd keeps reining us back in and bringing us back onto that path. Debbie. No, it's good. No, absolutely. There's yeah. a fine line yeah. where eventually you That's right, absolutely. Prayerfully asking God for wisdom to to approach our brother lovingly. Yep. Or when not to approach him. Give right. him give him time. You know? That's right. There's yep. that fine line between you know, Amen. Believing in this condition. You know? Yes. That's right. That's right. Diana Lynn? Yeah. Paul addressed them as brethren. Yep. You know. Yep. So I think sometimes that helps me to balance. Right. Yep. You know. Because uh, I would have said, well, that, those people are not saying right. what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yep. Amen. Yeah. Yep. Amen. All right. Good stuff. Let's look at this uh, continuing on here in this, this first paragraph. Um, another aspect that's important in this. Uh, in this section is what we persevere in. And notice here that the confession states that it says his elect can neither totally nor finally fall from a state of grace. They will certainly persevere in grace to the end. Um, and that's very important because the, the grace, when we, sometimes when we think about grace, we can sometimes short circuit it and say that it's only salvation in regards to justification, right? For by grace have you been saved through faith, 
and, and we can kind of stop there. But the whole of the Christian life is grace, right? It's because if it's not, then we're looking at flesh and works and us doing something in order to remain in this favor with God. Um, so that grace given to us by God in our justification continues in our sanctification, causing us to persevere. And I love what the confession says here. Notice how it states it. Uh, This is the fourth line down, beginning with the word therefore. It says, therefore, he still, notice that word still, he still brings about and nourishes in them faith, repentance, love, joy, hope, and all the graces of the Spirit that lead to immortality. So it's not that he just brought that to us in our justification. He still brings that to us continuously, right? It's the continual operation of the Lord in our lives. Now, to be sure, as we've stated, and I think as Debbie has rightly noted there, we definitely stumble and fall in the state of grace. That's important, important distinction. But as the confession says here, we will not totally or finally fall from the state of grace. So there's a difference there. One is you're in that grace and you're fighting and struggling and wrestling against sin. One is you're falling from uh, a state of grace. And the reason for that, again, is because salvation is a work of God from start to finish. That he's going to get us all the way home. And this was Paul's exhortation to the Philippians. I am sure of this. There's a confidence here that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. All right, so that covers the totality of the Christian life. He began it, he's going to complete it, and everything in between he is overseeing and causing you to persevere in it. What great comfort that is for us. The second part of this paragraph deals with the reality that the lives of God's elect are lives of war, right? Both without and within. But the confidence that we have is God is our conquering king, right? If if we were left to ourselves just subjects in a country and we were left to ourselves to battle on our own, how discouraging that would be. But we have a king who's leading us who's guiding us, and our confidence is not in ourself, but in him. And what scripture tells us about this war that we are in, that Christ has already won it for us, even though the battle still remains. I I quote this uh, little pamphlet from J.C. Ryle often. It's called, Are You Born Again? Awesome little pamphlet. Type it in online, Are You Born Again? J.C. Ryle, you can read it very encouraging for the Christian. And are you still born again? You probably think that's more of an evangelistic track, which it's good. It helps people to see whether or not they're regenerated, but I found it equally helpful for the believer. And here's what Ryle says under this, under this reality of the war that we find ourselves in and the temptations of our, our flesh. Ryle says, speaking of the genuine Christian, he groans under the burden of indwelling corruption cleaving to him. He finds an evil principle within him constantly warring against grace. Can you relate to that? Right? That's, that's Galatians 5. Flesh, spirit, constantly at war, not going to end until glory. And it tries to draw him away from God. But, this is the genuine Christian, he does not consent to it, though he cannot prevent its presence. In spite of all shortcomings, the average bent and bias of his way is holy. His doings are holy, his tastes holy, and his habits holy. In spite of all the swerving and turning aside, like a ship beating up against a contrary wind, the general course of his life is in one direction, toward God and for God. And though he may sometimes feel so low that he questions whether he is a Christian at all, he will generally be able to say with old John Newton, I am not what I ought to be, I am not what I want to be, 
I am not what I hope to be in another world, but still, I am not what I once used to be. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. That's a great statement that Ryle uses to summarize the Christian life. It is a life of war. It's a life of fighting constantly against the flesh as it seeks to to rise up. But when you step back, the genuine Christian's life will be on a path headed to one direction. That is to glory. Yes, there will be the turning and swerving aside on that path, but it's all moving forward to that one place. And it's God who is doing that work in the life of the Christian, who is causing that Christian to persevere all the way to the end. That's why we can say with Paul, it's a good fight. That, amen. That's right. Amen. It's a good fight. Will. Yeah. Yeah, the war is a good sign. Right? You think back before you were a Christian, there was no war. There may have been sadness due to the consequences of your sin, but there wasn't an inner longing, inner desire. I want to live holy before God. Nobody else is around. Nobody's watching. Nobody's there. My, my own thoughts, you know, it's just like, man, I just want to, please help me. Help my thoughts, Lord. I, I just, I don't want to think this way. That's a good sign. It's the Spirit of God working within us. And this reality uh, that we will get all the way to glory, the confession says here, is because the believer, I love the way it says this, is anchored by faith to the foundation and rock, which is a reference to Christ and all the promises that the believer has in him. Uh, So despite all of the things that come at us and all of our own personal struggles with sin, we are anchored to Christ and are therefore assured to persevere. A passage that speaks so well to this end about our confidence in God and the confidence that God wants us to have is found in Hebrews 6, which is cited in the second paragraph, but I'm going to bring it up here in this first paragraph. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Hebrews 6. And look with me at verses 13 through 20. Hebrews 6, verses 13 through 20. Go ahead and read this. If you have like subtitles, there's a helpful subtitle there, The Certainty of God's Promise. It says this, For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. Okay, now notice the reason that God did this here, verse 17. So, when God desired to show more convincingly, do you love that? Let's, let's stop there for a second. What, what, how did he show first convincingly? He, he gave his word. He can't lie. That, that's the end of it. But then he puts an oath on top of his infallible word. He comes behind his word and he puts an oath on top of it, which he shouldn't have to do. Now, we have to do that because our, our words aren't always true, right? You're, you're signing different things and there's multiple levels of assurance that these things will come through on a contract, not for God. When God says it, that's it. That word stands by itself. He can't lie. But notice verse 17 again. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things, his word, his promise, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us, We have this, speaking of the hope, as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. That's where the confession gets this wording from. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. Now, just a little Old Testament quiz there. What's that referring to? 
Very good. Okay. The inner place behind the curtain, the Holy of Holies. Okay. That's where our hope enters. Our hope enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, that word forerunner there, to just to show you the assurance that, that God wants us to have about his persevering grace in our lives. Uh, Lewis Talbot, in his uh, Hebrews commentary, says this, and this is, this is really helpful when you think about the forerunner. Okay? Talbot says this, the Greek harbors, and just to help you to see how people would have been thinking about that terminology that was used, Talbot says, the Greek harbors were often cut off from the sea by sandbars over which the larger ships dared not pass till the full tide came in. And why was that? Because if the larger ship tried to go over that sandbar and got stuck, now it's subject to the waves crashing against it and breaking that ship up. Much like what happened actually at an axe on the, when Paul was on the ship and the ship broke apart. So Talbot says this, because that's the case, therefore a lighter vessel known as a forerunner took the anchor from the large ship and dropped it in the harbor. See, that lighter vessel could go over the sandbar. It wouldn't get stuck. So it would take the large ship's anchor and it would bring it into the harbor and it would drop the anchor of the large ship into the harbor even though the ship was not yet in the harbor. Okay? From that moment, that large ship was safe from the storm, although it had to wait for the tide before it could enter the harbor. The entrance of the small vessel, Christ, if you will, in this analogy, into the harbor, the Holy of Holies, the forerunner carrying the ship's anchor was the pledge that the ship would safely enter the harbor when the tide was full. And because Christ, our forerunner, has entered heaven itself, having torn asunder everything that separates the redeemed sinner from the very presence of God, he himself is the pledge that we too shall one day enter the harbor of our souls and the very presence of God in the new Jerusalem. Amen. That's the assurance that we have, and that's the picture that the writer of Hebrews is painting. Christ has entered in. You're anchored by faith to him. You're in union with him. Even though you're still out in the sea, <laughs> subject to the wind and the waves, because your anchor has been dropped, you're getting in when the tide rises. That's the assurance that we have. And that's the assurance that God wants us to have, as we saw there in Hebrews 6. Right? He gives that. He wanted to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the assurance that he wants us to have. Now, other passages speak to this end as well. 1 Peter chapter 1. And I'm just going to skip down towards the end of this passage where it talks about our inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. And notice again here, kept in heaven for you. Some translations, reserved in heaven for you. That is a reservation that you have not made, you were elected to have. Right? You didn't call in and say, I'd like a reservation in heaven, please. God, before the foundation of the world, said it's reserved in heaven for you. And who by God's power are being guarded, being protected through faith for a salvation that's ready to be revealed in the last time. Right? All of this is God's keeping power in our lives. So as the confession so beautifully lays out here, the fact is we're going to have all kinds of wars and struggles and wrestles against sin. And it finishes this way, yet God is still the same. They will certainly be kept by the power of God for salvation where they will enjoy their purchased possession for they are engraved on the palms of his hands and their names have been written in the book of life from all eternity. Amen. Okay, let's move on here to paragraph two. Can I have somebody read that for us?
based on the efficacy of the merit and intercession of Jesus Christ in union with him, the oath of God, the abiding of his spirit, the seed of God within them, and the nature of the covenant of grace. The certainty and infallibility of their perseverance is based on all these things. Okay, good. So it's not based on the fickleness of our own quote-unquote free will, right? If, if it were left up to us, we would depart, right? We're, we're going to leave, but it's not. It's based on this reality, the unchangeable, unchangeableness of the decree of election, which flows, the confession says here, from the free and unchangeable love of God the Father. Now, I want to think through the logic of this statement made in the confession here. How does God's decree of election secure the perseverance of believers? Well, I want to look at a, a text that speaks to this end here. Romans 8, verse 30 says this, And those whom he predestined or elected, he also called, we looked at that back in chapter 10 on effectual calling. And those whom he called, he also justified. All right, so there's the aspect of justification. And then notice this. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. If you're justified, your glorification is a guarantee. If God has justified you, it's guaranteed that you're going to be glorified with him. But notice how all of this reaches back before time. In eternity past, in the counsel of God, in electing a people for himself. Those whom he predestined, he called. The gospel came to you, you heard it, you repented, believed it. God justified you. And, it speaks in the past tense here, he also Glorified. That, that's the certainty of our salvation. Our glorification is spoken of in past tense because it's so assured already. That's the encouragement that we have. Yes? So if you um, experience uh, acceptance of Christ, yes. and you're walking with Him, yeah. and then you come to the point in your life where you have strayed, and you're no longer walking with Him, and yeah. your life is sin. How do you know whether you're one of the uncalled yeah. or whether you're one of God's who's going to come, come back? And I would point to, I, don't know, I would ask you, uh, do yeah. you think that Second Peter 1.10 is an answer to this question? Go ahead and read Second Peter 1.10. So Second Peter 1.10 says, uh, Whoever lacks these traits is nearsighted to the point of blindness, having forgotten that he has been cleansed from his past sins. Yes, of all the things that we're to add to our our faith. Right. Yeah. Therefore, brothers, be all the more eager to make a calling and election sure, for if you practice these things, you will never stumble, and you will receive a lavish reception into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Yeah, I would say, good question. I would say that how, how do we know if we're elect, the ones who are chosen by God? And my answer to that is always the same in the sense of, Repent and believe and trust the promises of God uh, that he has given to us uh, in Christ. So uh, we, earlier on in the class, we kind of talked about those who once made a profession and then have fallen away. And my counsel to that was in John 10, Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice and they know me. Um, turning to the word of God with somebody, reminding them of the promises of God. And again, this is a person who has at once professed the faith, Right and was walking in it, in it for a time, reminding them afresh of the profession that they've made. What was it that you professed? So I think counsel is needed uh, in a situation like that to help them to see, here's what you once professed. I want to hold you to that profession. Here's how you ought to be living in light of that. Whether or not a person turns, um, and again, we want to be slow to say that we know the end of the story because that could be the end of their life when they look afresh unto Christ. Um, but their response to the gospel, I think, is a good indicator of where that person, where that person stands. So if they turn and come back, then they want to God, but they keep heading in the wrong direction, 
Yeah, if, if, and, and when I say if, if they abandon the faith, so there's a difference there between struggling with sin and abandoning the faith. Abandoning the faith would be, I don't believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. I don't believe that I'm coming to the Father through him. I've turned aside from that. I'm either trusting in something else or I've abandoned faith, quote-unquote, altogether. Um, so I want to be slow in saying that struggling with sin or fighting against sin um, means that the person has abandoned the faith. Uh, if that were the case, we'd all be abandoning the faith, right? There, there's a sense in which we deny the faith every day through our struggle with sin, uh, but we turn back. We keep turning back to what God has promised to us in Christ. Doesn't that give the person's free will, though, a, a role? Like if you're saying that, okay, they're heading on aggression, yeah. bring them to the mind of their repentance and their choice, yep. and then they can either choose to keep going or right. choose to turn back to God. Doesn't that give the person a role uh, in, in, in the outcome? I, I, yeah, I would say. That's correct. Yeah, and, and I think uh, Philippians 2 would be the way that I would answer that is that work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, and underneath that command, right? So that's something that we've got to do. Here's, here comes the command work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For, so there's a ground underneath that command, it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Um, yeah, so I would see underneath that, working that out, is the power of God working in us, causing us to work out that salvation with fear and trembling. So, good, good question. Norman, then we'll move on here. I think that's, that's an important aspect of church discipline is the, the last step in church discipline is that person is excommunicated from the fellowship. And what that is, is the church under the authority of God saying that to treat that person as an unbeliever, which doesn't mean that you're angry with the person. And, you know, it means that there's a different role in your relationship with that person now upon their uh, continuing, continuous in, in sin that you're now dealing with them on a, different, on a different level. So I think church discipline is very helpful and informative in situations like that because you're dealing with the person now based on their lifestyle and the profession that they have, have abandoned. So the role has changed. And ultimately, you know, as we looked at 2 Timothy 2, we rest in that reality that God knows those who are his. The purpose of church discipline is restoration, is that that person might come to their senses and come back to that faith that they once, once professed. Okay, so, all right, I've got to move on here to this next uh, section. Good questions. If I didn't get to a question that you have to ask, please drop it in the box uh, back there. So, uh, Confession goes on to say that our perseverance is also based on the efficacy of the merit and intercession of Jesus Christ and union with him. Uh, so, what Christ has merited for us, what he's purchased for us, is eternal life. Right? We saw that in John chapter 10, I give them eternal life. Now listen, by definition, that is life that cannot be lost or else it wouldn't be eternal. Yes. Right? If, it was, if, if, if a person said, I, I was united to Christ at one point, which is another way of saying I've been given eternal life and then I've walked away from it, it's an impossibility. It's an impossibility for you to truly have eternal life and then to lose it because eternal life wouldn't be eternal then. It would be temporary. If he's given us eternal life, then it cannot cease or else it's not eternal. In addition to that, our union with him is also proof that we will most certainly persevere. John 14, 19, Jesus said, 
Yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. And then notice what he says. Because I live, you also will live. Right? So there's the, the assurance of our union with Christ. It's because I live and you're united to me that you also will live. Paul says it this way in Romans chapter 8, verses 35 through 39. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? There's a union that's spoken of there. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Can any of those things separate us from the love of Christ? No. Right? That's Paul's affirmative answer. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth. And just in case I missed anything, anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is, again, the assurance that God has given to us in Christ. Let me finish this section, and then I'm going to have to leave you with 17.3 for your devotions this week. (laughs) Another means of us persevering that the confession mentions here is the nature of the covenant of grace. Uh, This is a passage that we looked at not too long ago, but somebody read that for us, Jeremiah 32.40. Okay, again, here's the foundation. What type of covenant will this be? An everlasting covenant, right? So that's the nature of the covenant of grace. You're brought into it and you're sealed, right, for all eternity. And notice what God says here. I will put the fear of me in their hearts so that they may not turn from me. So what confidence do I have that I'm not going to turn away from Christ? When maybe Romans 8 happens to me and the sword is at my neck, what's the confidence? It's this right here, that God has put the fear of himself in my heart to keep me from turning away. If left to myself, I'm a goner, right? But God has done this so that his people will not turn away from him. And then finally, I'm going to read Hebrews 9, verses 11 through 15. If you still have your Bible open to Hebrews there, just look with me at chapter 9, verses 11 through 15, and we'll conclude with this. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, Then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, right, so that's old covenant, but by means of his own blood. And notice what happened when he did this. Thus securing an eternal redemption. Right? So it's not a temporary redemption that you saw back in the Old Covenant where they had to continue to make these sacrifices. He has secured for his people an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, and that, notice the language here again, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Verse 15, therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called, there's the reference again to effectual calling that we looked at in chapter 10, those who are called may receive what? The promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Again, that word eternal shows up three times in those five verses to strengthen the assurance of God's people. 
that this is something that God has given to us. We are eternally secure. The work that he has begun, he will complete. Okay? Desmond, and then I'll pray. Yes. In other words, if I don't do this, you will turn away. Yes. Amen. Ever since Adam in the garden, yep. the issue with our wills is that they are so corrupt that they cannot in and of themselves choose good. Yes. So the new covenant says, okay, I will do this work in you. Yes. So um, it's not it's not our, our wills choosing God. It's not the work. It's not anything. It's God himself saying, I will do this thing. That's yeah. why it's eternal and everlasting. Amen. Prior to that, it, it, it couldn't be. Yes. But Christ has secured that for us. Amen. And so we don't look to ourselves, we don't look to our works, we don't trust our wills, but we trust in God in Christ who has done that work that only He can do. Yes. So we have such a sure hope. Yes. Amen. 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 Good, good word. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time that we've been able to spend opening your word together. And Father, again, we thank you for the assurance that we have that you that has begun a good work will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Thank you that we are your sheep. Thank you that you have called us to yourself. Thank you that you have given us eternal life. Our confidence rests in him. And how we thank you for that, Lord. Father, help us to continue to look afresh upon the gospel, moment by moment, day by day, that our hearts would not be led astray to look at anything else to find the foundation that we stand upon. On Christ, the solid rock, we stand. All other ground is sinking sand. We praise you and we thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.